Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve you. The title of my message is this. It is The Secret of the Goat. The Secret of the Goat. What in the world is this guy talking about? The Secret of the Goat. Well, I'm kind of excited to talk about it because sometimes the Word of God will speak in the form of a rifle. Right? Sometimes you get into a message and sometimes you're thinking, I think this guy's just talking about my need. Has he been reading about my mail and stuff like that? And, and uh, sometimes it's just individually God is working at one or two or just a handful of people at the time. And, and, and I have no responsibility, I'll just say this, for anything that the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. Right? But there are other times that God will kind of speak with a, a, a shotgun. You know that kind of poof. And this is one of those sermons. This is, this, this is one that affects absolutely every one of us. And it deals with the fact of defining and pursuing greatness. What do we learn that makes a great woman or a great man a great woman or a great man? And I think we should all strive for this thing which is called greatness. To strive to be good is the highest level of average or the lowest degree of excellent. You don't really arrive anywhere. And many times people think that bad is the opposite to great, but it's not. The arch enemy of great is good. And we need to kind of take that into consideration. Because few people reach greatness because it is just too easy to be good. Greatness requires something from us, does it not? There's a price to pay. There's an effort to make to be great. I remember as a young person growing up and being in the sports world, there was an individual who was named Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay. We know who he is. And, and Muhammad Ali, he was boastful over the fact that he was the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest of all time. I beat Sonny Listen, I beat Joe Fraser. I beat Joe Foreman. And I am the greatest. I float like a butterfly. I sting like a bee. No, you guys don't remember those days? Sure we do. Don't be faking like you don't know. And, and, and as we have traveled through time, there's a word that we now use to talk about those people who are considered to be the greatest of all time. G-O-A-T. The GOAT. And that is something which is interesting in our subject matter today and in our world today. We seem to celebrate our goats. Now, when Jesus begins to talk, he actually talks about someone who was the greatest of all time. If you read Matthew chapter 11, it says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Remember that passage of Scripture? So if we can classify someone as the greatest of all time, other than Jesus, of course, it would be this individual whose name is John. What were the qualities that made him that way? Surely, if we did a survey of all the great people, there would be some common elements. But if you take a look at the book of John, you will realize that the way to go up is to actually go down. 
And the way to grow up is to grow down. Because growing down destroys the pollution that, and pride that havocs our lives. And this is mentioned in the greatest scripture, or the greatest chapter in scripture, if arguably when we consider John chapter 3, don't we? And so let's read John chapter 3, the second half. It says this, after these things, sorry, starting at John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptized in an aeon near Salem, because there was much water there. There's plenty of water there. And, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified? Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, uh, bear me, me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He, has, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, and he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. And he, he who has reached his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Wow. It's a great scripture, but it kind of pales in comparison to the kind of Nicodemus talk that they have. You're thinking, what is there that I can actually learn, and, and why exactly is this here? Well, let's kind of, let's kind of figure out where we left off and, and kind of let you know where we are going here, okay? Because I think that there's an, a, some incredible things to learn from this passage of Scripture. Now, Jesus finishes. He's talking to Nicodemus, and this, this is this guy. You could not get higher than Nicodemus, could you? Now, as we look ahead into chapter 4, there's this woman from Samaritan, and you could not get lower than the girl in, in John chapter 4 that we're going to be reading about next week. So all of a sudden you got this person where you couldn't go higher, another person where you couldn't get lower. In the middle of them is the meat of this sandwich. Why exactly does the Holy Spirit put this story into place where he does? Well, Jesus kind of ends the conversation with Nicodemus by saying this. Here is the verdict. That's the word it says. Here's the verdict. You know, you, you know, God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he begins to say this. Here is the verdict. People were drawn to the darkness rather than to the light. And the verdict is this, that those who choose Jesus, those who choose me, will come to the light. And those who won't choose Jesus do it because they love the darkness. And you say, well, what's, what's so special about that? Well, Jesus is basically saying something incredible here. He's saying this. Whatever happens at the end... It's not going to be because of whatever excuse you have to not serve me. It's because you actually love darkness better than light. Well, I'm not serving Jesus. 
And I'm choosing not to serve Jesus because the dad that I grew up with and went to church with was not the dad that was at home. He was abusive. He was cruel. He did all kinds of terrible things. I'm sick and tired of the hypocrites. I'm not serving Jesus because of the hypocrites. Well, when you get to heaven, what Jesus is actually saying is this. The verdict is this. Oh, if that was the case, then I can excuse you from all the things that are going. That's not the case. He says, actually, the real reason that you chose not to serve God is because you actually chose darkness over light. That's a powerful statement, don't you think? And so what happens? Yay, amen to that. And so what happens is he begins to go on and there is a change of the scene and he was in Jerusalem and now he extends out of the city of Jerusalem and into the province of Judea. And he begins baptizing. Now let me just tell you this. This is not the Christian baptism that we are talking about because Jesus had not died and rose again. It was a repentance baptism. And he didn't do the baptizing. I know it says that Jesus baptized, but really... It wasn't Jesus that did the baptizing. And if you read a few chapters ahead, actually when you see the start of John chapter 4, it says, although Jesus didn't baptize himself, his disciples did. And we can understand why. Can we not? Like, let's just picture this. You're going to be baptized, right? And all of a sudden, there's Peter there baptizing, and there is Thomas there baptizing, and there's Andrew there baptizing, and there's Jesus there baptizing, What line are you going to get into? What line are you going to choose? And if it's a straight line there, say, hey, listen, go before me. Go before me until Jesus is there and you'll kind of get the Jesus line, right? No? You would do the same thing, would you not? You know, you could go up to Thomas and say, hey, Thomas, I doubt. I doubt that you could do as good a job as Jesus. And those people who were just baptized by Jesus would kind of have this kind of element of pride So we can understand why that was the case, but he was. He was baptizing. And you think, well, is this a problem or is this not a problem? And and, and it was kind of an interesting thing. And it says, because there was plenty of water. It wasn't like they were beside each other. They were in totally different sections of it. And so here's the thing. This was a John the Baptist thing. Jesus, why don't you stick to the miracles and the healings, and the walking on water, and feeding the 5,000, and I will do what I do. John was doing quite well until Jesus came along. He was losing his effectiveness. He was losing his notoriety. He was losing his influence. He was losing his popularity. And I guess, and I would imagine the, the temptation could be this, and although it's not John, it's his leadership team that's saying this. Hey, we put on camel clothes for you? I point the way for you. I even baptize you to start off your ministry. And this is the thanks that I get for all of this. And he, even though he doesn't, there is that, that element of what is taking place at this time. And so you're left to ask yourself, what is the real issue? What's really going on? And as we, as we uh, begin to take a little bit deeper look into this situation, we'll realize that perhaps it has nothing to do with baptism at all. It has to do with two of the most ugly sins that captivate us, cancers that go into all of our souls. One is called pride. The other one is called envy. Have you heard of these ones? 
Part of the Catholic Church, they talk about the seven deadly sins. Both of these are part of the seven um, deadly sins. And there's something about it. Sometimes the issue is not the real issue. You know, we use the other issue so that we don't have to face the real issue and we don't want to sound petty or unspiritual. And pride and envy are dangerous because they will often hide themselves behind other issues like what was happening here. You know, there was the camouflage. Like, take a look at the passage of Scripture. It says, in verse 25, it says, you know, all of a sudden something happened between the Jews and John's disciples. Jesus' disciples aren't even involved in it. And when John begins to talk to them, he mentions nothing about purification. Nothing at all about purification. He starts talking about all of these things that are attached to pride and envy. So let me just say to you many times that the issue hides, doesn't it? Because we don't want to admit to the deeper things which are cancers in our life. And this is the perfect example as to where we see this. Now, pride. Many of us know what pride is. It is the exaltation of self over everything, including God. It's when we think of ourselves above or before God. And the thing about pride is this, is that every other sin that you have will have pride in it. It is linked to every sin that we will commit. That whole thought of our thinking of ourselves rather than anything else. And pride is the thing that caused Satan to fall. Pride is the thing that caused Eve to eat the apple. Proverbs says this, pride becomes before instruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And it is seen all the way throughout the scriptures. Pride is what caused people to build the Tower of Babel. It was the downfall of Pharaoh in Egypt. It was the downfall of Uzziah and Hezekiah, kings of Egypt. It was the fall of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and King Herod in the book of Acts. And the Pharisees are in the same boat at the time of Jesus. It is the attempt to dethrone God in our lives. Envy, on the other hand, is kind of a form of pride. But it can be described as our distress over another person's success. Ouch. It is to cast longing eyes on what God has given our neighbor. A lot of people describe it as the green-eyed monster. I don't even know how it got that name. But it actually sounds good, doesn't it? Many think that envy and jealousy are the same, but they differ. Envious is to desire what someone else has. Jealousy means that you are fearing someone will take what you do have. Both words can be referred to as covetousness. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, number 10, it says, thou shalt not covet. Bob Sorge in his book, Envy, kind of says something I think which is interesting. He says, nobody likes to admit that they have envy because if they do, they are admitting a number of things. They end up admitting that I'm not established in my identity with Christ, that I'm ungrateful for the things of God, that I compare myself in a carnal way to my brothers and sisters, and that I function with a spirit of competition in the body. This envy thing just runs so deep. James chapter 3, he's talking about wisdom at the end of James chapter 3. If you have a chance, take a look at it this afternoon. And as he ends James chapter 3, he says, you know, the wind wisdom from above is all of these things. But then he says, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your life, you're in big trouble. 
what happens is it lies against the truth. That's what a term that it says. It distorts your view of things. It's kind of looking into a mirror and it's kind of, it's kind of distorted in, in every kind of way. And it comes under personal crisis. You know the problem, I think, with envy and pride is this. When you have sins and you don't want other people to know, you hide it. But you yourself know what's going on. Pride and envy are different in that not only does it hide itself from those people outside of you, but it also hides itself from yourself. It hides in the crevices of our soul. It camouflages ourselves so that many times we don't see it until something takes place, some type of a crisis. Something just takes place and all of a sudden we see it. And envy is the reason that Cain killed Abel. Envy is the reason that Esau hated Jacob. Envy is the reason that, that uh, Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. And why Leah hated Rachel. And why Hannah hated Benaiah. It transcends gender, folks. It is just one of those things that can be very, very, very difficult. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. Envy rots to the bones. Envy has no problem weeping with those that weep. Envy's problem is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Envy, and I'll tell you this, envy is the one thing that puts a wet blanket on revival. We think that it kind of dies out. You know, we, we get tired of worshiping Jesus and then we kind of go back to normal. Well, no. Many times, if you take a look at a history of revivals and why they petered out, is because one group was envious of another group. That's not God. What's happening there is not God. Why? Well, because it's not happening here. It's not happening to me. It becomes that terrible. It restricts the power of God moving. And the truth is this, that envy works in a way where I'm not envious of someone like Billy Graham. Well, mainly because he's dead, but that's beside the point. But some other great pastor... But envy does kick in when it's with the pastor across the street. And youth pastors often don't envy senior pastors. They envy other youth pastors. You see, you see how it works? See how it happens? Now, both envy and pride never leave you in a good place. You never find a person that says, man, I'm so much better. I'm so much closer to Jesus because of this pride and envy in my life. And John the Baptist says this. Let's talk about the real issue. Because if you don't understand what this passage is really about, you kind of, it's one of those things that kind of fades by you. But it's also the reason why John was as great as he was. Now, there are lots of other reasons that I will be able, that I could, you could probably be able to tell me, but I think that there were four perspectives that, that John had that made him to be the person that he was. And the person that maybe we should strive to be. The first thing is this. Let me just say this. I think that John had a good theology. John had a good perspective of God. He had an accurate view of who God was. And this is important. Because throughout history, people have done some terrible things because they've had an incorrect view of who God was. Many people have wreaked Huge damage because they didn't really know who God was or understood who he was. 
And a correct theology ignites our passion for God. A correct theology calls on us to live better lives. A correct theology causes, causes us to serve him in a more passionate way. Someone said this. He said, human beings didn't invent God. And because God existed independent of human experience, theology cannot originate from God through thought, human thought or experience. So we have to gather who God is by what he reveals about himself through his word. Isn't that true? God didn't create us. If he was here way before us, we are left to understand God by what he chooses to reveal himself about us. And that is through the word of God. But John reveals some things which shows that he had a, per, a correct perspective on God. Like, take a look at verse 27. He said, a person cannot receive only what is given to him. A person can only receive what is, is given to him from heaven. That's a true statement, don't you think? You are who you are because of God. God is the one who controls your life. He controls the good. He allows some of the bad to take place to, to develop and work in our lives. But I cannot surpass what God wants to do in me. That's a great perspective of God. And it's a great perspective of success. And our goal to achieve and fulfill all that God has in our life. I love this one. Verse 23. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Well, what's so special about that? Well, it says this. Your faith is not based on what or who you have, but rather on what or who has you. Should I say that again? Your faith is not based on who or what you believe, but rather on who or what has you. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Which leaves, leaves us to the next perspective. Not only did he have a good perspective of who God was, he had a good perspective of himself. He had a level of humility. Now, if you read the Bible and know the Bible, you will have read that, that uh, one of the most humble people in, in all of history was Moses. I venture to say that, that John the Baptist was probably the Moses of the, the New Testament. True humility sees a life from a viewpoint that seeks to bring glory and honor to God. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. It's not a low view of yourself. It is an accurate view of yourself. Isn't that true? And sometimes God will allow you to go through times to actually see not so much who he is, but to see who you are. Has that ever happened to you? I remember a number of years ago, if I can be a bit vulnerable, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a time where I was seeking the Lord, and I felt for sure this was the direction that God wanted me to go, and as I prayed for God to move, and, and that there was just these confirmations, everything coming together, this is the way, this is the direction. And so I went in that direction. I radically changed what I was doing. And what happened was everything that I did, you know how things turned to gold? That didn't happen. It was the opposite of what happened. Everything that happened 
turned to mud. And I couldn't understand it. And there were walks that I took and conversations that I had with God. Now, if this would have lasted a week, I could bear it. If it lasted a month, I could bear it. Sometimes philosophers or theologians call this a dark night of the soul. And it comes when you are actually digging in to God with everything that you have, and God does not show up. And it gets worse, and it gets worse. And just when I thought I hit bottom, it got worse. And it got a little bit lower, and I finally hit bottom. I said, God, this has to be the bottom, and it got worse. And it was at a point where I hit a point where I said, I don't know. I don't know if I can continue this way in my faith. And it was over at least a year time where I was feeling this misery. All I can say, it was this misery. And I made the decision, I don't care if I go down another 100 feet, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give you absolutely everything. And if you plunge me down even more, I'm still going to serve you. I'm 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 going to serve you. And in that process, God began to show me who I was. And I did not like the picture. I saw a level of ugliness in me. I saw a, a level of pride and arrogance and selfishness that I had never, ever thought was imaginable in me. And it was there right before me. Would I want to go through that time again? Not in a million years. But it's probably one of the greatest times of my life as I look back. Those times where God actually shows you who you are. And the great thing about John was this. He knew he was. He had the proper perspective of who he was. And he was willing to submit himself to it. <laughs> There's a difference between the one and the other, don't you find? To submit yourself to who you actually are. The reason why humility is so hard is because the tuition is very high sometimes. Now, the greatest example of that is Jesus, is it not? Gave up heaven to pay for our sins. He humbled himself, it says in Philippians, even to the point of death and resurrection. Wow, incredible, incredible. He had a great theology, a good perspective of God. He had a great humility, which is a perspective of himself. And the other thing was this. He had a great, what I call a great identity, which would be a great perspective on how God saw him. You see it important, you know, you realize, oh yeah, I, of course I have to have an, an accurate view of God, and of course I have to have an accurate view of myself. But it's just important to see what God desires to do through you. This is one of those points where many times people remain stagnant in their faith because they, they get the level of both and God says, okay, so here's the job. Here's what I have for you. This is what I want you to do. And as long as you have breath, you're here and you're breathing, check. God wants to use you. As long as you have breath, God wants to use you. You have an identity in him. And he saw himself as the bridegroom, the best man. In that day, the, the responsibility of the bridegroom 
was, part, was to be a huge part of the betrothal program. You know, a lot of times with, 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 uh, with marriage in that time, there was, a, there was a time where they asked them to marry, and there was kind of a year that went by. And the best man would be the liaison between the bride and the groom until that. And what happened was the, the, the best man watched out for the bride during that betrothal period. Isn't that interesting? You take a look at, at John the Baptist and what he did. That's a, a perfect example of who he was. It was integral, part of what he had to do. And he knew that that's what he was. As you look at your identity in Christ, what do you see? Do you see someone who is loved, someone who is valued? Do you see him as your, his treasured possession, something which is an important part of the process? Because if you don't see yourself as to what God wants you to do, then you never fulfill what he has for you. This is why John did as well as he did. He knew what his identity was. And it leaves us to ask, what is it that God is calling you to? Some people say, oh, I've tried and tried. I don't know what my job is. I don't know what my identity is. And Jesus, well, read the Bible. You'll find out who your identity is. And it's not so hard. If you just sit there and say, God, I love you. Use me. Put me in the place where you want me to be. I think that he does that. And you take a look at the passions. You take a look at your experiences. You take a look at all the gifts that you have. And God puts you in a place where you can do tremendous things for him, whatever that may be. You were born with those gifts. You were born with a purpose. God doesn't make mistakes. To discover your identity in Christ and to live it out is crucial, I think. There's the last one. Theology, humility, identity, destiny. He had a proper perspective of the big picture. What kind of window are you looking out? Do you see things through the big picture? Obviously, if you take a look at John, he looked past this life into eternity. Do I filter success through the big picture? Do I filter family through the big picture? Maybe the biggest tragedy is that we become stunned in our spiritual growth because of spiritual nearsightedness. We stop our vision at death. We come across with a thought that, that I will choose to live one world at a time and, and what I'm doing right now really doesn't have an effect on what I do for eternity, but nothing could be further from the truth. What is the lens that I am wearing? Does my lens see things through this past life, past myself into eternity of what God really wants to do? It's an important thing. Here's, here, I think, maybe one of the biggest things that we miss out on, I think, is that as Christians, we are doing our best to live our lives for something to live for. But with God and with our faith, God is looking for people who are looking for something to die for. Isn't it true? And as we take a look at our lives and we take a look at the perspectives that we have, I think that there's a call on God. And I'm not too sure exactly why this is in such a strategic position between him speaking with Nicodemus and speaking to a woman at the well. But I think that there's something that is deep for all of us to believe, to believe. You know, 
Let me just finish with this. You may not realize this, but in that passage from John chapter 3, verses 22 to John chapter 3, verse 36, at verse 31 to 36, many theologians, 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 argue about who actually said those last five verses. Isn't that funny? Now, if you take a look at some of the, the renditions in Scripture, there's quotations, which means you believe that it's John continuing to talk. In the original language, those aren't there. And what they're basically saying is, John stopped speaking at, at John chapter 30, and then from 31 to 36, it is going back to actually John the Apostle speaking. Now, either way, it's just as anointing. It's just as anointed. But John, many times, he would narrate in the middle of his story. He would give a narration. And all the language that is there is basically John's language. And he goes back to the same thing that he said in the end of chapter 2. And now at the end of chapter 3, he says this. You have got to believe in him. You have got to give your whole life to him. And that word believe, as I said before, is used a hundred times in the book of John. And, 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 and John just keeps hammering home the realization that it all begins to make sense if you believe completely and fully in him. Pistua is the name in the Greek. And it talks about giving your life completely to him, not just merely giving an intellectual assent to it. And I'll tell you this, it's not just a one-time deal, is it? To continue to give him everything, to continue to allow him to change your life in the midst of whatever confusion you are going through, in the midst of whatever trial you are going through, in the midst of whatever is not making sense in your life, he calls you to believe, to passionately, passionately follow him. And my prayer is that we will do that so that we can have all the things that God has for us. Amen? God, I just pray that we will passionately serve you. There might be people who are here today, maybe people who are watching online, and you really haven't come to that point where you say, God, I want to believe in you. You can leave this place today knowing that you know Jesus. It's a matter of praying and asking God to come in, to commit your life to him completely and fully. And if you are interested in doing that, I encourage you to call the church if you're watching online. But if you're here, I want to meet you at the front. But I believe that God is calling many of us to believe again. I don't know if that makes sense to maybe some of you who are here who kind of have been struggling over the last little while. Maybe asking God a lot of questions and God says, listen, I got, I got control of this. You just have to believe in me. You have to give yourself to me again. So God, I pray that you'll do that. Every heart, every life, people who are here at the beginning, maybe they're young adults or youth, those who are in the older years of our lives and, and 
And we are just kind of at the point where we got to continually surrender to you. And I ask God that you will do that. I pray your blessing upon each and every family. Lord, each and every struggle that people are going through, each and every challenge, I don't know whether it's a health issue or a financial issue or if it is just a, a frustration issue. You're calling on God and you're tired that he's not answering the way you are wanting him to answer. I'm not too sure. All I know is that God is calling you today to believe again. And I ask God that you will do that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will dig into all of our hearts today to passionately follow you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.